Okay, hi guys, this is uh, episode one. What I'm going to cover is actually to do with the complexities of leaky gut. So whether you know it as intestinal permeability, obviously there's a few different terminologies for it. Um, what I really want to cover is that there's a lot of different types of damage that we can actually cause, cause to the, the epithelium or cause to the gastrointestinal lining. So yes, when we talk about leaky gut, and the traditional form of leaky gut that we talk about is basically known as hyperpermeability. But the point that I really want to get across in this podcast is that is one type of damage to the actual epithelium, the mucosal lining. So it's definitely an issue, and then you might exhibit symptoms that are more related to something like a hyperpermeability. But what I also want to get across is that the real issue that we're facing with something like uh, gut damage, uh, damage to the epithelium and so forth, is just the actual damage to the structure of the connective tissue. And that's what I really want to touch on because that's really ultimately what, what we want to have, what we want to fix, is we want to fix that actual structure. And I'm going to cover some of the key components that you can start to add to, to, to really help to um, uh, fix, fix this complication because you actually look at it, particular peptides are really coming into the, into the realms at the moment. Uh, if you look at like uh, BPC157, uh, it's a particular peptide, gastric peptide that actually helps with like connective tissues, that actually helps with collagen. So, and I'm not disputing uh, this and its ability to actually help with things like leaky gut and so forth, but obviously they use it in uh, particular other connective tissue areas like things like tendons and ligaments. So uh, they obviously use it in the athletic performance realms to actually help with uh, injuries and so forth. So there's definitely uh, a lot of evidence to show that this particular peptide can actually help with things like leaky gut. But I also just want to talk about some of the complexities behind it. Because when we actually look at uh, hyperpermeability, so I want you to imagine like if you've got these mucosal cells and the epithelium, you've got them in areas like your lungs, You've got them in areas like your, your, your small intestine, uh, your, your stomach, your large intestine. So hence why you can actually get things like intestinal permeability in your small intestine and your large intestine. Okay, so this, you can see how so many people can get so many different symptoms based on these types of complications. Yeah, okay. So the, the, the thing I want to talk about is there's all these different types of epithelium as well. Yeah, okay, so you've got... Uh, in, like enteroendocrine cells, and that's where you produce things like gut hormones, but also hormones that actually help with like blood sugar management. Uh, if you look at things like glucagon-like peptide one, that would just be one example. Actual enteric hormones that actually help with like gut motility. An example of that would be something like modelin, so it actually helps with intestinal churning. Okay, now that's just one type of cell. Another type of cell you've got is goblet cells. Okay, and goblet cells help to produce uh, like things like a mucin, like a protective mucilage, and that actually helps with like pathogens and microorganisms, but also helps with lubrication in the gastrointestinal lining. Okay, then you've actually got the the, the major ones that sort of make up the, the small intestine, which is called enterocytes, and enterocytes help with aspects of like detoxification. It's really interesting to understand that about 25% of detoxification actually takes place in the 
gastrointestinal lining. Again, I think we forget that. We think everything is down to the liver. But what I'm finding is that most of our detoxification issues are coming from poor ability to clear things through things like feces and so forth because of what's going on in the actual lining itself. Yeah, okay? And so also with the enterocytes, because um, you look at the area like the small intestine where about 90% of our digestion and absorption actually takes place, they actually help with the release of enzymes and some of those enzymes like aminopeptidase, carboxypeptidase, dipeptidase that actually helps us break down things like uh, amino acids into those singular amino acids, but also, you know, actual enzymes that help us with glucose molecules. So things like sucrase, maltase, you know, uh, dectrinase, which helps us with things like dectrose, you know, like a glucose molecule, um, you know, and also things like lactase, uh, and that obviously helps us with things like lactose. Yeah, okay. So, you know, real essential things to actually help us to break down you know, macronutrients into the singular molecules so that we can obviously utilise it in the body. Um, you know, so there's three cells and then we've got things like progenitor cells. Now, progenitor cells, they're sort of located more towards the base of the, the, the crypt, um, the, the intestinal crypt, and the role of the progenitor, progenitor cells is to actually help with, like, neural stem cells. So that's actually to do with, like, communication to the brain, so the enteric nervous system, which is the nervous system that exists between your gut and your brain. Okay? But also, it actually helps with your ability to replenish other epithelium within the, within the villi. Okay? Now, that's why I talk about it's all well and good to say, you know, based on research and so forth, that the epithelium and these mucosal cells can rejuvenate and re replenish themselves within about five to ten days. And most of the time when we're doing this type of research, we're doing it in like a Petri dish. Um, and I'm not disputing the ability of the connective tissue to replenish itself very quickly, but I we need to understand that things like the enterocytes in the small intestine and so forth, they're really dependent on the health of the progenitor cells. Now, once again, if the, the damage within the gut lining starts to become more severe, where we're getting things like crypt hyperplasia, okay, which is basically like villi atrophy, so the, the, the damage within the gastrointestinal lining is just getting bigger and bigger, where we start, it's, it's not just you know, particular epithelium, it's not just the brush borders, but it's the whole villi. Yeah, okay? And people who really start to have damage with the, the villi, because they're struggling to assimilate these singular, you know, amino acids and so forth, well, they start to get complications like neurotransmitter issues. They start to get hormonal issues. Now, why? Because the, the microbiome is not, a is not assimilating the, the singular molecules that essentially is, is giving them the building blocks for these, for these key brain chemicals and hormones. And that's why all of a sudden they start to display brain cognitive issues, you know, maybe fertility issues and so forth. Hence why I say we always want to really start by correcting the foundations. And so essentially how we're, um, of, of course, the quality of the food that we're actually putting in our body, okay, but also the filing cabinet that's basically taking these larger molecules, breaking them down into the singular molecules, that's giving us the building blocks for all these protective compounds, hormones, neurotransmitters, and so forth, yeah, okay? Well, you want to you correct the foundation first, yeah, okay? And if I actually look at another epithelium that is sort of located at the base of the villi um, or, or the base of the intestinal crypt, you've got panacells. And like panacells, 
They actually help with the release of enzymes like lysozymes, uh, secretory phospholipase, and these enzymes, they actually help us deal with microorganisms and pathogens and, and so forth. And that's why they're you know, strategically located at the base of the, the, the intestinal crypt. Now, why? Because they're slightly protected there and they're not getting bombarded with all these these uh, macronutrients, uh, not higher amounts of like antigen response and so forth. So they're protected and that enables them to be quite effective in releasing the enzymes to protect us from pathogens that we're ultimately going to be exposed to. I mean, I want to reassure you that's completely normal. Yeah, okay. So what we need to understand, when we start to damage these cells, the mucosal cells in the epithelium, there's no way that you're just going to damage one type. Okay, so yes, there's more goblet cells located in the colon, you know, located in the large intestine. There's more enterocytes in the, in the uh, small intestine. But once you start to, to damage, because essentially we're, ju- we're just dealing with contractile proteins, we're dealing with connective tissues. So once you start to damage these areas, okay, you're damaging all these cells. Okay, so it's really interesting. Like, I want you to actually think about that. So once you actually start to damage all these cells, I want you to think of how many different symptoms you're going to get as a consequence of that, okay? And that's really important to understand because there's so many different types of damage that you can cause to these cells. Now, when I was talking about the major one that if you read up about leaky gut, the major one that they're going to talk about is uh, basically uh, hyperpermeability. And so that's basically when you've got permeability through the intracellular type junction. So when I was talking about those epithelium, okay, it basically means that the junctions are widened more oft- often between those cells, which means certain you know, enzymes and fluids and protein molecules that would normally get filtered at a particular rate, they're not really getting filtered and they're getting through those intracellular type junctions. They're basically getting into your hepatic portal system, so bloodstream liver, and they're ramping up antibody response, which your body has the capacity 100% to, to, to deal with. Yeah, okay? But you can have too much ramped up antibody response and antigen response, and this can put a lot of pressure on cell reactivation, so it can put a lot, a lot of pressure on things like your white blood cells and so forth, and also a lot more pressure on mediator response, and a lot of these things are like protein molecules, like things like cytokines and interleukins and, and so forth, and things like prostaglandins, which basically derive from, you know, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, so things like DHA, EPA. So you're putting a lot of pressure on your omega-3 fatty acid reserves because you're having to ramp up uh, anti-inflammatory sort of mediator response to try and deal with this ramp up, ramped up antibody response, yeah, okay? So this is a typical sort of like intestinal permeability scenario that gets talked about, but what I want to also uh, uh, educate people on today is that there's so many different types of damage that you can actually cause to these cells, okay? Um, Hence why you can get so many different symptoms that just relate to hormonal brain energy because once things are getting into the hepatic portal system um, and these things that would normally get filtered and so forth, they actually have the potential to damage your cells, damage your mitochondria, and that's going to affect things like adenosine triphosphate. So it's going to affect your energy systems. Okay, so people just have more lethargy, uh, fatigue. Okay, because um, 
once again, it's all well and good to focus on the mitochondria, which I'm definitely going to talk a little bit more about in other podcasts. But if there's things getting through there that are essentially, that would normally get filtered, that are damaging your mitochondria and damaging your cells, it's going to constantly affect your energy systems. Okay, so that's why we essentially want to, you know, um, help to repair that structure, help to repair that gut lining, okay, because we're stemming the flow. That's where we should really be starting things, yeah, okay? So what I want to look at is the actual, the epithelium themselves, okay, because, and just their structure, what are they made up of, yeah, okay? Um, and so basically those cells, they're just connective tissue, okay? So they're basically smooth muscle, okay? And so this is just to do with collagen, Okay, so what actually helps to make up collagen? We've got hydroxyproline, proline, glycine, arginine, amino acids. Yeah, okay. Now we look at the things that actually help you assimilate these singular amino acids, so things like B6 pyridoxine. Okay, so that's why this vitamin is so important when it comes to your gastrointestinal. So not just to do with like the synthesis of serotonin, okay, all these different metabolic and enzymatic processes, but just so important for the gut lining. Okay. Um, if you actually look at zinc, it actually helps with the structure of the epithelium, but it also helps with elasticity when it comes to things like collagen. Um, you actually look at manganese is really important, copper, vitamin C. Yeah, okay. That's why when you've got issues with like blood glucose and so forth, you can affect the uptake of vitamin C within the cell. But vitamin C is also required for the synthesis of white blood cells and helping with things like lymphocytes, like your secondary line of infection. But guess what? You don't just need vitamin C for these things. You need vitamin C to actually help with the repair of collagen. Okay, so you can see where it just becomes like a domino effect or a cascade effect. Okay, but so what I'm essentially talking about with these, with the epithelium and the, and the structure within the gut lining, it's a little bit like a soup that you actually need to make sure that you've got all the key ingredients. Yeah, okay, and you can see where it becomes like a bit of a cascade effect. Once you start to damage the epithelium, you start to affect how you assimilate these amino acids that you need to repair the gut lining, but also the micronutrients that actually also help with the structure. Okay, And so it's really interesting when they've actually done research and they've actually shown that people with IBD, and so what I'm talking about here is like irritable bowel disorder, irritable bowel disease. So um, people who've got complications like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, uh, even complications like fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, okay? Um, and even like I'd probably throw into the mix like uh, diverticulus or diverticulitis, okay? Because a lot of these things are 100% linked to the, 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 the structural integrity of areas like the, the colon, the large intestine, and the duodenum, like the small intestine. So when they've actually done testing on people who've got IBD and also things like IBS, which is like irritable bowel syndrome okay and so there's all different degrees of this but one thing that i want to say is about 70 percent of all ibs symptoms really associated with like SIBO, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth okay but the other 30 percent is uh linked to microbiome imbalances but also just structural issues within the gut lining and that would be things like gut motility issues intestine and intestinal permeability yeah okay so Anyone with IBD, IBS, when they've actually tested their ability to produce collagen, they actually produce up to 20% less collagen. 
Okay, and so if they're producing up to 20% less collagen, obviously that's going to affect the, the structure within their gut lining because once again, we're just talking about connective tissue. So not even just the epithelium, but the connective tissue underlying that, which is basically an area known as the lamina propria, which is really important when it comes to your immune response. Okay, because within the lamina propria, we have a thing called GALT, which is gut-associated lymphoid tissue. And this is all to do with like your first line of defense because it's to do with B cells and B cells are to do with antigen response. So basically, an, an antigen response is not a bad thing because sometimes it's just your ability to respond to particular carbohydrate molecules and protein molecules. So basically, food that is coming into the gastrointestinal lining, okay, and you understand the body has to identify what is this molecule and essentially what, what do we need to do with it, yeah, okay? And so the initial response is like a trigger mechanism and that can be triggered by things like immunoglobulins. Um, so this would be things like IgA response, IgM response, IgG, IgE. Once again, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, okay? But if you look at uh, the B cells, they basically tell these other cells called the M cells, which go to the, the lumen, which is the, the surface of the gut lining, just as identification for what is this molecule. And obviously, if it's a carbohydrate molecule and a protein molecule that the body needs to utilise, then it's going to deal with that appropriately. But also, what happens if it's like a pathogen or a bacteria? Okay, so it needs to identify that. And then basically it's going to transport that to the immune system and that's going to get involved like cell reactivation and that's going to be things like your neutrophils, your, your basophils, your, your, your monocytes, okay, your eosinophils, okay, because they're like pro-inflammatory white blood cells, like initial responders, and that basically allows them to like exhibit, engulf and excrete. Yeah, okay? So your gut lining is, is so important for that first line of defense. And something that I always talk about is like when it comes to immune response, where do we think like a huge amount of antibody and antigen response and immune response is taking place on a consistent basis, okay? Well, you're not constantly... So if, like if I give the example of like cutting yourself, okay, so when you cut yourself, there needs to be an immune response. There's going to be a stress response, okay? And... The reason there's going to be an immune response is because your body wants to protect it, itself from potential bacteria and so an infection that may actually come as a result of that abrasion and that cut. Okay, but how often are you cutting yourself? Like very rarely. Okay, and like maybe once every sort of like six months, seven months. It's not going to be a regular occurrence. But how often are you eat, eating food? Which means your body has to respond to the the, the particular types of uh, um, pathogens and bac bacteria and molecules within the food. So that antibody response is, is, is taking place on a regular basis. And it's really interesting when you actually look at it because, yes, predominantly your white blood cells come from the stem cells in your bone marrow, but they also come from the gastrointestinal lining. Yeah, okay? And so that really comes down to that loose connective tissue, the lamina propria, and things like GALT. Okay? And it can be up to about 20% of your circulating white blood cells, anywhere from about 10 to 20% of your circulating white blood cells are actually coming from the gastrointestinal lining. And that's really interesting because there's, there's, there's potential that that actual percentage has increased over time. And why would we think that it's potentially increased over time? Because the structure of the gastrointestinal lining over 
generations and over decades has potentially deteriorated even more, which is creating even a higher amount of immune response in the gastrointestinal lining. For me, that makes perfect sense. That's why I'm putting so much emphasis on the, on the structure of the gut lining. Okay, so, and we actually look at that lamina propria, which is the connective tissue. Now, once again, it's just made up of collagen. Okay, so all those components that I talked about previously, it's the same thing. Um, and if you actually look at the, the lamina propria and you look at things like the GALT, the gut-associated lymphoid tissue, if you stretch that out, it would actually, this is why the, the gastrointestinal lining is the most protective lining in the human body. Because if you actually stretch that out, it would actually stretch for about 240 to 300 metres. Now that's actually the size of like 10 tennis courts. Okay, so if I stretch, because obviously your skin is, a, is another protective surface area, but if I stretch out your skin, there's no way it's going to stretch to that type of distance. So that just puts a huge um, emphasis on how important this area is. Okay, So getting back to when people have things like IBD and IBS and they're producing up to 20% less collagen, okay. so how do you think that might actually start to manifest with people who've got like gastrointestinal complications and so forth, because it's also going to affect other connective tissue areas in the body. And so if we look at that, that's things like muscle, so it's going to affect things like myosin, okay? It's also going to, also going to affect things like your tendons, your ligaments, cartilage, okay? It's going to affect uh, things like bone, okay? Because essentially they're just made up... Because what I need to sort of get across is there's like six different types of collagen, um, in the body, okay, and obviously they help with things like skin, okay, uh, so also can help with things like stretch marks and so forth. So sometimes when you've got gastrointestinal problems and you're actually finding that you've got things like stretch marks and so forth, that can be related to your, your, your gut-related issues. And it's really important to understand because it's just, once again, it's just like a cascade effect. Like if you're producing up to 20% less collagen, it's just leaving less sort of... Um, nutrients and so forth to actually help with these other areas because if we look at like priority systems in the body things like tendons and ligaments and cartilage and bone whilst they are extremely important they're just not imperative and especially not in moment in time and that's something I'm definitely going to cover in another podcast okay because the priority systems for me in moment in time okay because I I really want to stress that the body's not an accountant so it's not sitting there and going well we're going to give directly 5.6% to, to the bones and the cartilage and or we're going to give uh, 25.6% to the brain. And guess what, brain? If you go over that, we're not going to give you any more. It doesn't work like that. The body assesses things in moment and time. And basically, the, it, it sort of has like three major priority systems. And they basically are a stress response, okay? And that's to do with fight and flight, HPA dysfunction. Okay, now why is the body going to prioritise stress response? Okay, because the perception from the body is this may actually lead to death. Strangely enough, the body is going to prioritise death over anything else. Okay, the other thing is blood sugar management because you can't have a stress response because you you need fuel for the cells in your muscle. You can't have a stress response without elevating blood glucose levels. Okay, Um, and as quickly as you're elevating blood glucose levels to respond to that particular uh, stress response and so forth, you're also, uh, blood sugar levels are going to drop, which means you also need to regulate blood glucose levels, okay? Which means if you don't regulate your blood glucose levels, this potentially means you might slip into a coma, and once again, this could lead to death. And once again, the body is going to prioritise death, okay? And the third one is antibody response. 
this has a huge link to your gastrointestinal lining, yeah, okay? Because if that's compromised, then you're just more you're more prone to opportunistic bacteria, which I'm going to break the news to you, is already there. Okay, so things like yeast and candida, okay, you're probably going to have a better environment for parasites like blastocystis hominis, dentamoeba fragilis to flourish. You know, I do believe that we can 100% live in harmony with parasites, but not if the environment is compromised, yeah, okay? And also things like negative gram bacteria, I'm going to cover these more in other podcasts, but you just leave yourself more vulnerable to this opportunistic bacteria, okay? And then the problem here is that once you leave yourself um, sort of prone to more opportunistic bacteria, these opportunistic bacteria, they're releasing byproducts like acetaldehyde, uh, LPS like lipopolysaccharides, okay? Um, it's going to cause elevation in things like histamine and a lot of these byproducts and so forth, they will just damage your gastrointestinal lining even more. So they're going to damage that connective tissue anymore. So you can see how it becomes like, just like a cascade effect. Yeah, okay. Um, so one of the major points that I want to get, a, get across is that there's so many different types of damage that you can actually start to cause, not just to the epithelium, but the connective tissue underneath. Okay, so the mucosa, the submucosa, and actually when you start to impact the submucosa, you can affect things like the parasympathetic ganglion, and that's basically to do with the parasympathetic nervous system, so basically rest and digest. So once again, we're affecting things like gut motility, so we're affecting intestinal churning, so we're also affecting the messages that get sent from the, the gut to the brain. And once again, I like to inform people there's just more evidence to show that there's more messages sent from the gut to the brain than the other way around, okay? So once again, like, we just start to affect so many different processes and so forth. So when I'm talking about the structure within the gut lining, okay, hyperpermeability is just one type of damage, okay? And so hyperpermeability, because you actually look at the intracellular tight junctions, and they're made up of, of like 50 different uh, protein molecules, okay, or 50 different tight junction proteins, and there's all these different sections to the intracellular tight junctions. Now, I want you to imagine, like, if you've got one epithelium and then it's pushed up nice and tight against another epithelium, in between that you've got the intracellular tight junction, okay? So when we talk about hyperpermeability and when you've got that taking place, okay, it basically means that the, the protein molecules that are located in the tight junction, which is one section of the intracellular tight junction, okay, they can be compromised, okay, and also uh, there's particular protein molecules that can stimulate particular protein molecules at the top of the tight junction and cause a more of a widening of the tight junctions, okay, and then other compounds, which I'm going to talk a little bit, uh, a little bit more about they get down the intracellular tight junctions and they damage other sections of the tight junction. And this essentially causes more hyperpermeability through the intracellular tight junctions and once again, particular uh, protein molecules and enzymes and fluids that would normally get filtered at a particular rate, they're getting through into the hepatic portal system and ramping up this antibody response, yeah, okay? So... But once again, it's just really important to understand that that is just one type of damage, okay? So other types of damage that you can cause to the epithelium is like splitting, okay? So you can actually cause like gastrointestinal fissures, which is really caused by chronic amounts of emotional stress, 
uh, a lot of stress in your life and you actually cause a little bit of splitting through the epithelium. And when you get the splitting in the epithelium, you actually affect the structure of the contractile proteins and the role of the contractile proteins in the epithelium is to actually help with intestinal churning. Okay, and so you affect the intestinal churning, you're affecting motility, which can encourage potentially bacterial problems because you're not able to churn food, which means the food sits there and it ferments and encouraging another issue. Okay? Um, now, also, you can affect other components within the cell. So you can affect areas like the Golgi apparatus, and the Golgi apparatus actually helps with our ability to assimilate and break down the macronutrients into more singular molecules. So once again, affecting building blocks. So splitting is another issue, and also when there's little like tiny splits in the epithelium, microbes and so forth can colonise down the splits, and this can cause a lot of aggravation within the gut lining. And maybe for these types of people, that can actually show up in um, like having like things like red blood cells in their stool, things like a cool blood, okay, because there's there's a lot of like gastrointestinal fissures, like bleeding within the, the small intestine, the large intestine, and this is essentially coming out in their feces, yeah, okay? That's another type of damage that we can have. Now, also, you can have permeability through the intracellular-type junctions, and you can also, like, have permeability through the cell itself. Now, you can use particular, like, glucose molecules to monitor how this transit time is actually um, uh, taking place within your gut lining. So they would test particular molecules like lactulose, and lactulose is a molecule that normally shouldn't be going through the intracellular-tight junctions at high amounts. But the problem in this instance, when you've got hyperpermeability, is more lactulose is going through the intracellular-tight junctions, and this would actually show up in your urine in terms of you having high amounts of lactulose in your urine, which is a sign that you've got hyperpermeability through the intracellular tight junction, junctions. Now, another, another glucose molecule that you have a particular transit time coming through the, the, the actual cell itself, because we've got two different types of activity here. We've got paracellular activity, which means through the tight junctions, and we've got transcellular activity, which means through the actual cell itself. Now, in some instance, like with mannitol, because it's got a particular tran transit time, once again, the glucose molecule that you can find in things like even like particular carbohydrate sources like potatoes, okay, um, that it should be going through, like the, tr the transcellular activity should be at a particular rate. But in some instances, you could have where the mannitol is not really going through the, 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 the cell itself, which could be a sign that the mannitol is sort of like fermenting um, at the top of the cell, uh, and that could be actually a sign that you've got damage to the brush borders and essentially you're not releasing enough of the enzymes from the cell to actually help to uh, break down the glucose molecules, which means essentially it's like a fermentation issue at the top of the cell. Now also you could have too much mannitol going through the cell and basically there would be too much mannitol coming out in your urine, which means that you, you could have too much mannitol, too much lactulose, um, in your urine, which basically means you've got permeability through the actual cell itself, but also permeability through the actual junctions, and that would be a sign of severe intestinal permeability. Okay? Then you can actually just have damage to the brush borders, and when you've got damage to the brush borders, you're going to have a lot of problems like trying to break down, and like damage to the brush borders, and when you've got damage to the brush borders where it's going through all through the villi, 
which is, once again, we call it like crypt hyperplasia or villi atrophy, yeah, okay? But that's actually related to things like, that's when people have things like celiac, yeah, okay? Because um, basically it means like bluntening of the brush borders or damage to the brush borders, because that, that's affecting the release of the enzymes to actually help you to break down particular molecules, okay? And in this instance, when you've got damage to the brush borders, that might actually start to manifest where you're not releasing enough things like lactase, and if you're not releasing enough things like lactase, then all of a sudden you start to get things like lactose intolerance. Okay? Another thing that I want to get across is that when you actually have damage to the epithelium, you can affect the absorption because if we look at the cell itself, you've got the apical part of the cell. Okay? Then you've got the, the lateral part of the cell, which is where the intracellular type junctions are located. And then you've got the basal part of the cell. Now, if I look at the apical part of the cell, where the sort of like the, the, the sea anemone is or the tentacles, okay, that help you release the enzymes and so forth. But if I've damaged the apical part of the cell, that can affect particular protein molecules, one of these being the GLUT5 molecule. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but the GLUT5 molecule, its role is to actually help with the metabolization of dietary fructose. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean you're, you're not getting the GLUT5 molecule into the apical part of the cell, but it, it definitely can compromise that. And if it's compromising that, all of a sudden, what do you think you can actually start to have problems with? Well, all of a sudden, you start to have problems with like dietary fructose. So you get things like fructose maldigestion, fructose malabsorption, okay? So, and then you can get like combinations where you've got damage to the brush borders, you've got damage to the like splitting within the cell, you've got hyperpermeability, okay? So, and that would be, so that would just be a combination of all these different factors. And for me, when people do start to get problems with things like intestinal permeability and leaky gut, it's very rare that it's just going to be one of these things. What I tend to find is that they've got damage to all these components, hence why they get so many different symptoms um, because it starts to affect neurotransmitters, starts to affect hormones, okay? They start to get so many uh, macronutrient deficiencies, they get micronutrient deficiencies. So once again, you can see how it becomes like a, a deck of cards. And the, the point that I really want to get across here is that we really want to impact and we really want to start to rebuild the structure of, of that lining because you can, you can get intestinal permeability in the duodenum, which is a small intestine, and you can get intestinal permeability in the, in, in the colon, the large intestine. And guess what? You can have both. Yeah, okay? So that's, that's really important to understand that. Okay? And so you could imagine why it just becomes like this huge cascade effect in the body. Yeah, okay? And so that's really what I want to... And, and this is something that has affected me personally because if I actually look at a lot of the characteristics that I had and I had the luxury of looking at things like blood markers and this can definitely show up in your blood markers and that's something that I'll, I'll touch on is that I basically had severe intestinal permeability. So I actually had permeability going through the, the actual epithelium itself and permeability going through the intracellular tight junctions a lot of these types of symptoms would lead to high amounts of antibody response and people who have, who have more hyperpermeability um, because they have more pro-inflammatory activity and, and also more anti-inflammatory activity, they tend to have issues within the joints, so just more inflammation, and especially where they've got high amounts of articular cartilage, so that would be areas like the fingers, areas like the spine. Now, I was definitely um, having complications with all these 
There's a lot more like protein molecules and so forth that would normally get filtered. Um, they start to become more problematic, okay? And if they start to become more problematic, some of these protein molecules and so forth, because your gut lining is basically like the protective lining for the brain. And a lot of these protein molecules, not only are they permeating through the, through the areas like the, the small intestine and getting into the paddock portal system, but they're also crossing the blood-brain barrier and causing inflammation in the brain. So you could understand why a lot of people with uh, uh, intestinal permeability and leaky gut, they start to notice things like neuroinflammation, they start to get a lot of neurological problems, uh, mood disorders, you know, and hence why it can be definitely linked to things like ADHD, um, even uh, problems like Asperger's and autism, and because there's definitely a genetic element also to intestinal permeability because people with compromised gut lining and, you know, if they're having children, unfortunately, they're, they're, they're passing down ba bad gut genetics and that becomes a problem. And we also need to understand is that we're all born with intestinal permeability and basically our gut lining is, is developing from the ages of zero to three, okay? Just like your microbiome sort of fully develops about the age of three. It's really interesting also. Your immune system develops by the age of three and also your emotional health develops by the age of three and something I'm going to talk about in another podcast because all those things are interlinked for me. Okay, that's why that, that time period is so important. But if we haven't really... Um, you know, we've been passed down these poor gut genetics and now all of a sudden we expose our body to things that compromise the, the, the intracellular tight junctions, the tight junction proteins, the structure of the, 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 the smooth muscle, the collagen. And so that would be even like ramping up your, your immune system because your own immune system can start to damage the gut lining. And so that would be things like your own white blood cells, so things like neutrophils and basophils because they're all to do with especially basophils and eosinophils and mast cells altered with histamine response. And if you actually look at histamine, one of the roles of histamine is just to make your gut more permeable. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because it actually helps the transportation of things like platelets, phagocytes, so things like neutrophils and monocytes and so forth. So it helps with immune response. But if it's making your gut more permeable and it's doing that on a frequent basis, then this becomes a real problem. It's an exacerbator because a lot of people want to understand, well, basically what has caused me to have something like intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And I, and I say there's, there's, just, there's not one culprit. It's an exacerbation of many different things, okay? So yes, your own immune system. Yes, bacterial byproducts, okay? But it also can be things like food additives, food chemicals, plastics, heavy metals, because a lot of these things cause like an antibody response. Now, pharmalogica, so like pharmaceuticals, so all thi also things like NSAIDs, definitely linked to, to intestinal permeability, Panadol and aspirin, okay? So more for me, it's an exacerbation of all this, like chronic stress because that causes a stimulation of your lymphatic organs and it, it's ramping up immune response, okay? Now also chemicals like found in like, like tap water can be a huge culprit because of containing things like chlorine, um, and even like gluten, like gluten's a factor, but I don't, like for me, and it's the gliden molecule in gluten that can become a little bit problematic here, okay, because it's just an exacerbator. That's what I really want to stress. Now, if you're getting it from the um, better, uh, better quality sources, and what I mean by that is things like triticum durum wheat, uh, also things like sourdough, 
things like rye. The gliding concentration is very low in these sort of like natural wheats and ancient wheats and so forth, which means you're not getting exposed to high amounts of the gliding molecule. Now, when it's been gen- genetically modified, they've modified it so there's just higher amounts of the gliding. And so the problem in this instance, and there was a guy, a scientist called Estrago, who basically was not trying to demonise wheat, and actually his research was from 2005. Um, and so when we're talking about the intracellular tight junctions, and there's all these different components to the, to the tight junctions, so for instance, at the top, you've actually got what we call the tight junctions, and that's where you've got tight junction proteins like oseludin or occludin, claudine or claudine, um, and then zonulin, okay? So these tight junction proteins help with the filtering process, so they help um, sort of dictate what particular molecules are going to go through those intracellular tight junctions, a little bit like an identification process, but you look at zonulin, which is the gatekeeper, so it basically just controls, you know, fluids and enzymes and protein molecules the rate at which they're going to go through those intracellular tight junctions, but also provides as a zipper, which means it actually helps to pull it tight again. Yeah, okay. So that's the top section of the of the intracellular tight junctions jammed between the the mucosal cells of the epithelium. Just below that, you've got adherin tight junctions. So once again, these are just all made up of tight junction proteins. Just below that, you've got desmosomes. And then below that, you've got gap junctions, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about those. Okay? And then at the base or the basal part of the cell, you've got hemidesmosomes, which allows the cell to communicate with the connective tissue underneath because the way to look at this is these cells are just constantly communicating with each other. And that constant communication also allows the cell cells to communicate with the microbiome, and that's really important as well because that just houses good ecology and good microbiome balance. So you can understand why what I'm saying in terms of trying to protect the integrity of that cell is just so important. Once again, it's just the terrain. Okay, we've got to just look after that terrain. We look after the terrain. We can look after the things that flourish within that terrain. It's a little bit like a forest. I'm going to use that analogy in a minute. Okay, but if we look at like the, the research that Estrago did, that he, he wasn't trying to demonize demonize the gliding molecule here he wasn't trying to demonize wheat but he basically and i'm just using this as an example of an exacerbator of causing some issues with with uh hyperpermeability and causing some issues with the structure in the gut lining but basically the gliding molecule stimulates zonulin and it does this whether you're celiac or non-celiac so you know and 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 the gliding debate and the gluten debate is is definitely a podcast for another time okay so I want to clear that up, okay? So whether you're, you're, you're celiac, non-celiac, it's the same reaction, okay? And so basically all it does, and this is not necessarily a bad uh, reaction, it's normal, okay? That's all he was trying to prove, is that basically the gliding molecule take, tells Zonlern to open the tight junctions wider, okay? So it basically opens the top section of the junctions, okay? So if we start to have... Um, let's say, wheat that has been genetically modified. And more importantly, this is where glyphosate, which is basically weed, weed killer, okay, it becomes like a combination issue. So because a lot of you know, things like oats and wheat and even other um, you know, things like vegetables and so forth are, are unfortunately sprayed with glyphosate, well, glyphosate is water-soluble, which means it definitely can damage things like your mitochondria and your cells, okay? Not essentially because most toxins are fat-soluble. This becomes a problem because you're essentially not storing it. 
means that also can cause a lot of damage to cells in the body. And you understand when we're talking about the epithelium, we're talking about cells. Okay, and so essentially, the gliadin molecule opens the top section of the junction, and then basically, uh, glyphosate goes down the intracellular type junctions, and it damages the gap junctions. So I want you to imagine, like, sort of towards the base of the cell, the gap junctions almost have, like, these little nerves running through them, which means that allows one cell to communicate with the other cell. And so what you're affecting is that you get more hyperpermeability, which means particular molecules can get through these intracellular type junctions. They get into your bloodstream. An example of this would be, like, glycosides, and those, that can be things like saponin and lectin okay so if we use the example of lectin which is a glycoside so a protein molecule found in plants so that can be things in like nightshades so things like eggplant and tomatoes you know and also in uh, legumes and lentils and and once again these things aren't bad okay these molecules are normal and we should have the ability to handle them but them being glycosides if they because in a healthy gut environment, they go through the intracellular type junctions unchanged, then basically they get into the bloodstream and there they basically uh, uh, bind to basically uh, glucose molecules and they form glycoproteins. And the problem here is they just cause biochemical chaos. And that's why a lot of people, when they've got intestinal permeability and so forth going on, and they're consuming things like, lec uh, like lectins, so nightshades and legumes and lentils, they just find that, it just completely like scrambles their brain and their hormones. And, and then once again, we just think the answer is, well, legumes and lentils and nightshades, they're bad. And they're not. A lot of those components are fine. Okay, So things like lectins, uh, saponin, which is like an acts as a little bit like an adrenal tonic. Okay, So mimics endogenous hormones. Okay, But it also helps to has some benefit with lowering things like cholesterol levels. So it's not a bad thing. And also things like capsaicin. Okay, So these molecules can get through at a more rapid rate and they can actually cause problems within not just the gastrointestinal lining but also within the bloodstream, also potentially cause some um, impacts with just a, the, our biochemistry in general. Yeah, okay. So the point I want to get across yeah, okay, is that if you get the combination of like gliadin and glyphosate, then essentially now you've got two cells that are functioning separately from one another. Okay, Now, if they're functioning separately from one another, I want you to imagine it's a little bit like your, your gastrointestinal lining. It's like a coral reef. It's like one big organism. Okay, And so if they're not pushing tight against each other and the gap junctions aren't pushing tight against each other, it means that cell is not communicating with that cell. Yeah, okay? And also that's affecting how the cell communicates with the microbiome. And the problem here is that affects how the microbiome are interacting with the, the particular compounds and molecules found in the food. So it's affecting how they assimilate them into the singular molecules, giving yourself the building blocks for neurotransmitters. And, so you can, once again, and then that is just a deck of cards again. Yeah, okay? And so that's the... That's the point I want to get across when we're looking at all the things that potentially cause the damage within the gut lining. It's an exacerbation of all of it, okay? And that's why you want to sort of like peel it back like layers of an onion. And the more layers you peel back, okay, and initially what we want to start to do just to alleviate a lot of stress on the gut lining and so forth is just reduce inflammatory load, okay? Because if you look at when there's just too much inflammation, 
I don't want to demonise inflammation here because it's a good thing. Like when we train, for example, you produce more of a particular pro-inflammatory protein called interleukin-6. That's a good thing, like causing that pro-inflammatory response actually causes you to produce anti-inflammatory mediators to repair the damage caused by that. It's a good thing, yeah, okay? But you can just have too much inflammatory load. Now, one of the problems with too, too much inflammation is you can affect the pancreas, so you can actually affect pancreatic beta cells. If you affect pancreatic beta cells, okay, that affects the release of insulin, so it's causing some disruption with blood sugar. The other thing is that too much inflammation can dampen the brush borders. Now, if it's dampen, dampening the brush borders, this can cause things like crypt or like villi atrophy, more deterioration in the gut lining. Okay? So that's why just reducing the inflammatory load. So hence why you know I've developed this sort of like gut repair protocol or it's called the gut repair and one of the key components in the initial stages is using things like curcumin and boswellia things that reduce the inflammatory load to ease the pressure on the epithelium so they have the ability to repair and recover okay this is just and and that's why most of the time when we're looking at um you know how do we how do we repair the lining it's sort of like a stage by stage process yeah okay um now, other things that can actually help with the lining is just giving the body the building blocks again, okay? So looking at things like, you know, bone broths, yeah, okay? Bone marrow, slow-cooked meats, yeah, okay? Because once again, these things, they're extracting a lot of the nutrients out of the bone that we need to repair collagen, to repair the smooth muscle and the connective tissue in the gut lining. That's why I'm so big on these things, yeah, okay? So... You know, the hydroxyproline, the proline, the glycine, the arginine, you're going to get th- more things like glucosamine. There's a particular one, N-acetylglucosamine, uh, that actually helps the epithelium itself. But also the, the, the glucosamine also helps with things like synovial fluid, hyaluronic acid. So lubrication within areas like the joints and the ligaments and the tendons, okay, helping with movement. Okay, so, so we're getting a lot of those nutrients and also... Uh, supply micronutrient support like things like P5P, like pyridoxal 5-phosphate, uh, zinc, you know, also vitamin C. Because initially what I want to do is I just want to give the person the building blocks to start to repair the, the connective tissue in the gut lining. Because the way I want you guys to look at it, if, if I'm deteriorating this structure... Your food window essentially is, is going to start to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay, so if you want to look at one of the most compromising gastrointestinal lining issues that you can have when it comes to what you can eat, it's leaky gut. But basically for me, it's just damage to the epithelium. I don't necessarily like that terminology, leaky gut. Because once I've got damage to that epithelium, it's going to affect the release of enzymes. So all of a sudden, I start to have problems like lactose intolerance. So you're going to struggle with things like dairy, yeah, okay? Um, now, my argument here would be, are you really lactose intolerant or actually do you have actual damage to the epithelium that's actually affecting this? Now, all of a sudden, you might get fructose maldigestion, fructose malabsorption. So you struggle with um, fructose. So all of a sudden, fruits become a problem. Now, I'm going to share my experience here, but basically when I had severe intestinal permeability, I couldn't have one strawberry without actually aggravating my gut. Okay. Um, now, one of the huge culprits behind this is permeability in the gut and damage to the epithelium because it's affecting the GLUT5 protein. So all of a sudden, the metabolization of fructose is becoming an issue. But 
what I would argue here, are you really fruit, do you really have fructose maldigestion, fructose malabsorption? Now, people with intestinal permeability also, they also struggle with sulfur metabolization. Okay, now if you're struggling with sulfur metabolization, you're going to struggle with things like cruciferous vegetables. You might struggle with things like Brussels sprouts, uh, broccoli sprouts. And the problem here is they're so high in things like sulforaphane, and sulforaphane is really good for glutathione, especially glutathione in the brain. So these things aren't bad, but all of a sudden you struggle with high sulfur. Yeah, okay. And if you've got issues with, with sulfation, okay, then that's actually affecting how you clear estrogen out of the system. So once again, it's just like a deck of cards, okay? So you're also going to struggle with things like sugar. You're going to struggle with things like alcohol because alcohol gets converted to ethanol, gets converted to acetaldehyde, and the acetaldehyde, unfortunately, it shrinks the epithelium uh, in areas like the small intestine, and you're losing more surface area, causing more intestinal permeability. So that's why alcohol becomes a problem in this instance as well. You're, you're, you're struggling with things like lectins, so you're struggling with things like nightshades, legumes, and lentils. Yeah, okay? And we need to also understand that because this really minimizes your, your food window, and this is not even taking into account the opportunistic bacteria that you start to develop as a result of the, the structural damage within the gut lining because all of a sudden, when you've got bacterial overgrowth, you may actually find that you start responding quite poorly to the, to the foods that these opportunistic, opportunistic bacteria like to feed on. Okay? And so that can be like carbohydrates in the, in the, in the terms of uh, things like candida and yeast, uh, blastocystis hominis, dentamoeba fragilis, okay? because they like to feed on carbohydrates and so forth. Um, and also uh, uh, overgrowth of negative gram bacteria, so things like Klebsiella, Citrobacter, Enterobacter. Okay, so they like FOSs, like fruit to oligosaccharides, so you start responding poorly to onions, garlic, artichokes, bananas, wheat, barley, chicory root. Yeah, okay, so that creates another issue because then now you start responding poorly to these, and guess what? Then your food window just gets smaller and I've been dealing with people like this for a long period of time now till it gets to an extent where they're only eating about, you know, maybe six to seven foods. And ultimately you'll find the vegetables that they're consuming there are things like carrots and zucchini, squash. Because why? Because they're low sulfur vegetables and they're just finding them easier to metabolize. But you shouldn't, that doesn't mean they're the, they're the vegetables that you need to be consuming for the rest of your life because you don't fix that damage Okay, your, your food window will get smaller because I really need to reiterate here that your food sensitivities change every three to four months. Okay, And if you're not rotating your foods and you're not getting diversity, that's affecting your microbiome balance, but it's also uh, causing high antibody response, high antigen response, because you build up a sensitivity to proteins and, and, and fibres very easily. And that's all based on food rotation. And the problem is you're not going to get much food rotation, which means, guess what? You're going to cause even more damage to the gut lining. And then over time, you're going to start to build up a sensitivity to that small amount of foods that you are consuming. So all of a sudden now you're going to... And so once again, what are you left to eat? Okay, so food avoidance, okay, and, and staying away from particular things like lectins and... Um, you know, minimizing fructose consumption, they can be a mechanism to reduce the inflammatory load. 
But these things aren't going to correct what's going on in the gut lining, and I really want to stress that, yeah, okay? Um, and so, yes, we can look at peptides to actually help to heal the gut lining. Um, so I talked about this, BPC157, and I'm not against this. There's a lot of research that stacks up to actually helping with this. But actually looking at a stage-by-stage process of starting to, to, to heal the connective tissue, this is really, really important. Um, and actually looking at compounds that also help to heal the gut lining. So that can be things like quercetin, quercetin, which you normally get from things like cherries, but where it becomes a problem that you may not actually be able to consume things like high amounts of fruit. Because the irony is fruit actually has a lot of components and a lot of compounds that we actually need to heal the gut lining. But for a period of time, because they might be causing like aggravation within the gut lining, we might need to be directly getting the compound itself because something like quercetin actually helps with the intracellular tight junctions and actually helps with the tight junction proteins. You know, particular types of microbiome like lactobacillus plantarum helps, actually helps with the, uh, the structure of the intracellular tight junctions. Okay, things like uh, N-acetylglucosamine, which you can actually um, have as a, as, a, as a supplement, but also get it out of things like slow-cooked meats, get it out of the bone, okay? Um, particular types of, uh, like a good yeast, like Saccharomyces boulardii can be really good for this. So, and also cod liver oil, because cod liver oil has vitamin A, and the vitamin A actually not just helps with the, like the, the stem cells, so it actually helps with things like white blood cells, so it helps to build up the immune system, but also just helps to uh, reduce inflammatory load. If it reduces the inflammatory load, it can actually help with things like DAO, which is diamine oxidase, and the diamine oxidase helps to mitigate histamine activity in the gut, but also minimising the, 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 the complications that are caught, being caused by the opportunistic bacteria as well. So, you know, I don't want to go too far into the antimicrobial realms because initially I just really advocate people applying things like you know, uh, bone broths, slow-cooked meats, uh, things like zinc L-carnosine, um, P5P, pyridoxal 5-phosphate, like all the building blocks, you know, um, cod liver oil for the vitamin A, all the building blocks that you actually just need to actually help with the connective tissue in the gut lining. Um, also, you know, things like fasting, something like a 6-1 method, because not everyone essentially has the capacity because they're essentially, and you're going to be a little bit more malnourished when you've got something like intestinal permeability. Um, but doing like two 15-hour fasts on your least stressful day, because doing something like fasting and applying it in, in a controlled way actually helps with repair of the loose connective tissue underlying the epithelium, like the lamina propria. So it actually helps with the B cells and actually helps with the immune response. So these are some of the, the, the best mechanisms and just like... Um, helping sort of mitigate the, the, the sort of uh, knock-on effect of like HPA dysfunction, so hypothalamus, pituitary, and like an overburdening of that access, which is also wearing down and causing, you know, um, you know causing like, uh, like essentially it can cause like an overproduction of protective mechanisms that are produced within the epithelium, like secretory IgA, Okay. Now, over time, that can cause you to also have low secretory IgA, which is like a little bit like a, a venous flytrap, and it traps in pathogens and microorganisms. Now, over time, you can wear that down where you're not producing um, enough of that 
protein molecule, which means your defense mechanisms are down, so you're just more prone to opportunistic bacteria and pathogens and so forth, okay? So it's really important that we just um, help with the structure of the contractile proteins and actually help with the structure of the, the actual cells themselves. That's why even things like amino acids, like L-glutamine, um, even things like goat's colostrum, because it's got uh, things like proline peptides, immunoglobulins. Okay, so it's got a lot of the components that actually help with the, the structure of the cell. So there's a, there's a lot in this, okay, and I definitely will cover intestinal permeability again at, a, at, a, at another time, but we just need to understand, because like this is something of our experience, that we just, once we start to actually help with the structure of the lining, improve the structure of the lining, we actually help with the, with the terrain, okay? And so what I want to leave you with, I want you to imagine if like, your, your gut lining being like the forest. And the, so the forest houses you know, all these different uh, animals, okay? And if we actually look at it, there's certain animals that flourish in the canopy and actually um, flourish in the trees, okay? And this is essentially, let's say, that's your good bacteria, okay? Now, there's certain, because it's a little bit like happy families, so about like 85% of your your, your bacteria is good, about 15% is bad, okay? But there's this symbiotic relationship and um, they're essentially like working together. So we don't want to demonise the bad bacteria, yeah, okay? Now, there's certain animals that flourish in the grass and the soil and essentially this is like your, your bad bacteria. Now, if we go through and we wipe out all the trees, okay, well, now we're actually affecting the environment, okay? And so are those animals that flourish in the canopy and the trees, are they going to flourish? They're, going to, they're definitely going to try, but this starts to affect the ratios, okay? Now, the bacteria that flourishes in the grass and the soil, all of a sudden we've provided the environment for them to flourish, okay? And so then the problem comes is they proliferate and then they're starting to release more bacterial byproducts that can damage the gut lining even more, Okay? So how we've tried to solve this problem is by using potentially things like probiotics and we're just trying to put more animals that flourish in the canopy and the trees but not actually, not actually fix the environment. And this is the big point I want to get across because logic would say how we're going to fix this problem is actually fixing the environment. Replant the trees. Once you replant the trees... You've actually got an environment that's going to um, house better ecology, okay? And so that's why essentially, you know, I've developed like the gut repair is to really fix this problem. Um, once you fix that problem, more diversity with food and that's going to encourage more diversity with the microbiome and that's going to actually help with realignment with neurotransmitters and hormones and, um, and so... Those types of things that I've also talked about, like I'm going to cover in other podcasts. But yes, leaky gut, it's like it, it is, there's a lot more complexity. There's simple things that we can start to apply to really fix this problem. Uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, until the next podcast, take care.